0: We briefly covered previously in our last time together concerning the concept of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. We brief it, briefly addressed that uh, in the previous study, but but not fully. Uh, I mentioned Mahatma Gandhi's remark that if this Jewish law was obeyed, then, quote, the whole world would be blind. We noted that a better understanding of this law was that it was meant to limit the escalation of vengeful retribution. The pagans practiced, for instance, two eyes and an ear for an eye, so to speak. It's not wrong to interpret this law as a a mere limitation to only an eye for an eye, but on a deeper, more accurate level, it's a wiser and more righteous law than a mere limitation of retribution. To understand it hebraically, we need to understand. Uh, we re- we really need to understand this biblically and hebraically because then you'll understand the heart of God uh, much better. I mean, uh, my reason for returning to this is not only to further clarify it, since we failed to completely cover it before but to, more importantly, help us build into our thinking a solid biblical view of God's attitudes so those attitudes become our attitudes. If we are to successfully engage the battle of our era regarding truth and justice, we need to be very careful that we learn to think God's thoughts in order to act in God's ways. Otherwise, we'll merely be a part of the rabble that does what's right in our own eyes, which is what the panoply of religious um, sectarianism and divisiveness is. Because there's always a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is the way of death. Proverbs 16.25 says, The problem we often have as Gentiles, unfamiliar with Hebraic understanding, is that we tend to think in black and white terms with no discernment or no understanding of nuance. This can sometimes cause us to err towards evil instead of overcoming evil. Uh, It's when we think that because the Bible says an eye for an eye, that there is at least at some point in biblical history, a time when it was all right with God for us to expect a form of equal vengeance in order to keep the books balanced, so to speak. And even though we know that Jesus overrules that way of thinking in the Sermon on the Mountain, where he, Mountain where he says, uh, you've heard that it's said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist evil. In some people's thinking, there can lurk this idea that uh, even though Jesus overruled it, and we're to understand uh, things from a higher position in Christ, it stands to reason that if at some time retributive, re- re- retributive uh, law was okay, then maybe, just maybe, there might be times when the older versions should be appealed to, even if Jesus himself adjusted it. But What if even the older version was never meant to be retributive or vengeful at all? What then? What if the heart of Yahweh is seen as clearly in the so-called Old Testament Torah as it is in the New Testament revelation given by Jesus? What if Jesus is not doing away with the law just exactly as he said he would not do in Matthew 5, 17. What if he's fulfilling it, which doesn't mean completing it and throwing it away, but it means to fill it full. So instead of saying, you have heard that it said an eye for an eye, but I say to you, do not seek any kind of equitable justice in this present system, for it does not exist. I have a far more effective way to bring about righteousness? What if that's what Jesus was saying? Instead of, well, in the Old Testament it says you can knock somebody's eye out if they knock yours out, but I'm telling you, don't do that. See, well, that's, not, that's not what's going on here. That's the way we understand it. Even at best, that's the way we understand it. At worst, I mean, there's some horrible misinterpretations of it, but at best, the way I've just been describing it is the way we understand it. It's not, the heart of this, either in the uh, Torah or in the words of Jesus. What he, what, what he's, if you understand the Torah correctly, then you'll understand the words of Jesus correctly. I mean, Jesus' words are pretty clear, but we don't understand the depth of them because we don't understand the original law he was referring to. To understand this better, we need to understand the rabbinic way of of interpreting an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, which is the way the people of Israel understood it. That it was not just limiting revenge. The heart of the law is far more equitable and practical than any form of revenge ever could be. And as a result, uh, it brings restoration and healing as much as can be obtained in, in this life in, in its fallen state. It was understood by the, by, by the rabbinical uh, teachers to, to mean this. You must determine the financial equivalent of the loss of the eye or the tooth and make payment to your injured victim of that amount. You are not to be forced to pay more than that. It is not righteous for your payment uh, if it's injurious to you to, to be so demanding as to end up injuring you also. So you only pay an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And you don't pay the eye with an eye. You pay with the equivalent of, of the eye. You find a financial equivalent for that. Do You see, the spirit of the law was never revenge. It's not Jesus saying, okay, you used to get by with revenge, but I'm telling you, don't do that anymore. That's not, that's not it. He's saying it never was revenge in the in the old covenant. It wasn't revenge, but now in the new covenant, it's it's even better than not taking revenge or just getting payment for your eye. I'm telling you, don't seek re- retribution in such a way as to be antagonistic and confrontive and hurtful to to the one who's hurt you. There's there's better ways to do it. It's actually not accurate for us to interpret it as being a mere attempt to limit vengeance to equal eye for eye, tooth for tooth. That's our Gentile misinterpretation. And it has caused us, consciously or unconsciously, to wonder how God could tolerate a little vengeance in his name. But he didn't. He limits our retributive uh, action to that which will restore life as much as possible in a fallen world. And that makes a world of difference in how we view God and then how we view the entire situation of confrontation and revenge, justice and retribution. Now, here's the problem. What I'm saying here may sound so foreign to some of us that we think I'm off in left field, when the real fact is, The church is so far off in left field most of the time because we have arrogantly cut ourselves off from our roots that we're coming up with all kind of crazy interpretations and misinterpretations at the the cost of wisdom and healing. I can hear someone possibly saying in typical Gentile form, but it plainly states in black and white, then whatever this letter of the law way of seeing things has has caused a lot of damage and suffering and confusion and even loss of faith in some people through the centuries it is the root of so much religious bondage and division and deception it happens partly because we're completely disobeying the warning of the apostle Paul in Romans eleven verses seventeen through twenty two what he says to us we are not to become arrogant against the root. What is the root? He's speaking there of our Hebraic heritage, our, our, is our Jewish roots. He says, don't be arrogant against the root. Paul says that it's God's intention for us as Gentile believers who are grafted in to that root to become, quote, partakers of the root and of the richness of the olive tree. And he warned us, again I'm quoting verse 25, Don't be arrogant, but fear, lest the Gentile church become, quote, wise in their own conceits. Boy, did that happen. But we've done exactly that in the way that we disdain the entire root and seek to establish our own Gentile root system devoid of any ancient foundations underneath us. Let me explain better what I'm saying. Paul describes this root we are not to cut ourselves off from as having in it, quote, the oracles of God, this is Romans 3, verse 2, all the written wisdom of Israel, Romans fifteen three. the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of Torah, the worship of God, the promises, the patriarchs, And ultimately, Messiah, who is God, blessed forever, Romans 9, verses 4 through 5. How is it possible that we could believe that God would invest his grace and love into the patriarchs, the children of Israel, the prophets, the sages, all to come to nothing with the coming of Messiah? This is exactly what Jesus was referring to when he said he did not come to destroy the Torah, but to fill it full. As a result of our rejection re- rejecting that root, we no longer partake of the quote richness of the sap of the olive tree, which is, by the way, uh, symbolic of the richness of the revelation of God given to Israel uh, in in the law and the prophets. So we splinter off into all sorts of wild Gentile surmise about how to live life with a little Christianity sprinkled in to make it kosher, <laughs> pun intended. Our rejection of Jewish education has left us with scores of Gentile misunderstandings resulting in misapplications and often simply wrong ways of acting. When if we had embraced the Torah, Jesus came to fill full, we would be living in a power and wisdom which by now uh, would have met the pagan world with much more reality and would be making Israel jealous, as Paul says we will in Romans. Now please understand, I'm not talking about keeping the law, quote-unquote, as a means of obtaining right standing. The entire book of Romans with Galatians and much of the rest of the New Testament speaks clearly to that. We're obviously not made right with God by any performance of our own uh, rule-keeping. We understand that. But what is no longer clear to many people is that being in relationship with God via his sovereign grace We are to learn how to live, how to walk with him, how to confront this present world, how to help mend the world. Failure to learn those truths will not necessarily break our relationship with God, but it will sure hinder our ability to manifest his kingdom in the earth as we're commanded by him to to do, to Go and and disciple the nations. You can't disciple nations if you don't even know how to balance your checkbook or keep your marriage together. But the cutting off of our root system is not the only force behind this failure to discern the heart of God. Uh, For many of the Jewish people who made up the root itself, they fell into the same deception of knowing the Torah without knowing the living Torah. The Sadducees denied the resurrection and all supernatural intervention by God into human affairs because it suited their political purposes to do so. While many of the Pharisees, who took the total opposite position from the Sadducees on most cases, manipulated Scripture in order to control people for also their own selfish ends. The Essenes used their spirituality to exalt their own self-righteousness, and claimed that they were the only true children of light, and everybody else was children of darkness. In every case, the heart of God was missed altogether, while dead religion daily defamed His holiness. Then, the living Torah himself comes walking in the midst of all that, and begins to heal the sick and raise the dead and feed people and comfort the 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 the, um, the hurting and and. Making, uh, you know, making the living purposes of God demonstrative in the earth, and uh, no wonder he turns to them in Mark chapter seven verse nine, and he says, in, "In in vain you worship me, teaching for doctrine the commandments of men; you frustrate the commandment of God, so that you may keep your own traditions." King James says you reject the commandment. The Greek word there is frustrated. You frustrate the very purpose God gave the law. In the Sermon on the Mount, which is, by the way, a re-giving of the Torah from a new mountain, Jesus speaks this same theme in several places. I mean, how many times have you seen it? Uh, You have heard it was said, but I say to you. How many times have you heard Jesus say that? And in each case, he is again filling full the commandments so as to make it clear what the heart of the law is. Or what about the times he says, this is kind of tongue-in-cheek because the Pharisees were supposed to be the masters of the law and to know it better than anybody else. And so Jesus says on several occasions to the Pharisees, haven't you guys ever read... Matthew twelve, one through three, he says, Haven't you ever read, and and he's confronting them about their misunderstanding of the Sabbath? Matthew nineteen, verse one through six, he says, Haven't you ever read and he's confronting them about their misunderstanding of the purpose of marriage? In Matthew twenty-one, verse thirteen through sixteen, haven't you ever read and he's confronting them about the nature of worship? Pretty major subjects that they don't seem to understand. They've got all the, all the nuts and bolts, but they don't know how to make it live. Uh, their mind is it's it's like uh, it's like Treebeard said about Sorrow Man in Lord of the Rings. Uh, their mind is full of metal and wheels. They don't care for living things. That's what a legalist is. He's, his mind is full of metal and wheels. He doesn't care about living things. So Jesus says in Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 13, speaking to the leaders, he says, Go learn what this means. This after they've criticized him for being seen with publicans and notorious sinners and, and drunks. He says, Why don't you go learn what this means? I desire mercy not sacrifice. Go learn what this means. There, there are too many examples. Like the number of times he heals on the Sabbath day purposely in order to demonstrate the heart of the Father related to the Sabbath. Mark chapters 1, 2, and 3. Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 13. John chapter 5. Just a few examples. It's the fallen nature of man to seek the rule rather than the spirit of the rule. This is why so much of religion is a study in missing the point. The point is always healing, restoration, cleansing, relationship, and life. This is why so many in Jesus' day who seemed to be knowledgeable, faithful disciples of the Torah missed Jesus altogether. Did you ever wonder how the, how could they know so much and miss him when he came? Jesus tells you in John chapter 8. He says, If you had known my father, you would have recognized me because me and my father are one and the same. But you never knew his heart. You know the nuts and bolts, but you don't know the heart of any of this. And you've taken my love letter and turned it into a self-serving Uh, document for your own devices and your own purposes almost every time jesus speaks to this issue he seems to be appealing for them to be loving instead of unloving open instead of closed serving instead of being served therefore more more godlike if all we have to look at concerning torah is the behavior of jesus's opponents then I can understand how it might be easy for Gentile believers to come to misunderstand the law as being harsh, demanding, without mercy. But if we go to the text itself, and then we go to the sages and the understanding of, of the teachers of Israel, whom, whom Jesus would have fully affirmed and fully uh, supported and did, If we go there and and we humble ourselves and begin to learn from the the olive tree, we we begin to see easily how uh, the heart of God is exactly the same as Jesus demonstrates in his mercy towards sinners, his care for children, his ministry to the sick and oppressed, his provision for the poor, he behaved the same way God the Father behaves in the Torah and in the Scriptures. How wrong it is of us to think anything otherwise. Jesus told us clearly in John 8, He who sees the Son sees the Father also. That there were dire warnings related to certain sinful behaviors was solely in order to keep Israel aware of the terrible dangers in those poisonous sins which they saw practised by the pagans around them, the Egyptians and then the Canaanites, the danger wasn't coming from God; it was coming from embracing that which God never intended and so yes there's there's dire warnings because they're they're slave slave-minded people coming out of slavery, and they they have no self-control and no wisdom. And so yeah, there's some pretty harsh uh, confrontations there, but there it's like it's like walking up to a concrete pillar that holds up a fence that keeps you from tumbling over a precipice and touching the concrete and saying, "Boy, that's pretty harsh." No, it's not harsh, it's strong because it has a hard job and that's to keep your stupidness from going over the side uh of of the precipice <laughs> so yeah there were dire warnings <clears throat> but if we do a little homework we'll find out uh that it was a very demanding and rigorous process to ever be able to bring anyone for instance to, to a death sentence in israel except in cases where they uh thought they had caught jesus and uh, very few capital penalties were ever meted out. I mean, you have these weird examples where they find a woman taken in adultery. Well, how convenient! How was she take How they find her taken in adultery by herself? Where was the man? Well, he was collusion. He was in collusion with them, obviously. Uh, the kangaroo court of uh, of. Uh, stephen uh, of of Jesus himself, these were anomalies that's that 's what made them so heinous <clears throat> they were so opposite of the spirit of the Torah and the way Israel normally dealt with uh with cases especially capital cases I mean it was very difficult to bring someone to death because the sages understood the severity and the 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 uh The awesome responsibility of uh, claiming someone was worthy of death. As one one of the sages said, quote, if there is an execution in seven decades, such a court may be too aggressive in its handing down of justice. He thought if there was an execution in 70 years, that might mean that the court in that area is, is too aggressive. Under normal circumstances in Israel, no one could ever be executed unless it was made clear that he understood the law. Uh, number two, he had to, to, uh, there had to be proof that he was given clear and fair warning of the danger should he break that law. And then it must be confirmed in the mouth of two or three witnesses that he did indeed break the law. Even then the penalty may be mitigated to a lesser punishment for the death penalty was meant to express heaven's opinion of the sin, while the handing down of the penalty may be left to God himself or may be mitigated for fear that misusing their authority they could end up shedding innocent blood. Do you you see the spirit of this? How different this is from the spirit of arrogant, prideful indifference to the sacredness of each human soul that you hear in the mouth of some of us. And I include myself in this when we make off-the-cuff remarks like, ah, kill them all and let God sort them out. Even said in jest, it betrays a grave lack of understanding among Western Christians of the God of Israel and how he views life and death, innocence and guilt, and just retribution versus revenge. But on the other hand, is there not a time for holy anger, for righteous response to evil? Is there not an equally grave danger of sinning against God by not acting against evil when you should have? Are not sins of omission just as dangerous as sins of commission? Well, the answer must certainly be yes. James 4.17 says to him that knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. Now, we spent a good deal of time in our previous study dealing with the meaning in Scripture of what what it means to not resist evil. We don't need to cover that again here. I only refer to it for a reminder for those principles that we've already discussed there we established that Jesus' statement that we are not to resist evil, quote quote cannot and does not mean that we're not to, to ever confront wickedness in, in, a, in a, a, a police action or a protection of your family, things of that nature. We're not to be sheer, utter pacifists, that under no circumstances we are to stand and fight evil. We're not to think like that. We don't need to retrace our steps through all of that. It was an intense study. But we do need to try to gain a more biblical picture of what is right and good for us to express and what is not. The mild-mannered, hat-in-hand, apologetic, and here I don't mean the ministry of apologetics, whereby we present truth in order to win souls, but an attitude that seems to imply I apologize for existing and for not pleasing you. Do forgive me. I will try my best not to say or do anything that might upset your apple cart. That kind of hat in hand, man be pamby, wimpish Christianity. That kind of apologetic so-called attitude uh, is bad enough. But when it tries to pass itself off as Christian love, it's a lot worse i want you to think about a few examples uh, uh i'm not trying to present doctrine here i'm i'm trying to present a, a picture of of jesus that will hopefully supersede the picture that maybe sadly we had painted for us in our sunday school world uh you know some of the pictures of jesus i believe they're i believe they're demonically inspired long, beautiful eyelashes, milky white skin that any uh, model would envy, Uh, slender fingers that never did a day's work, Uh, beautiful, long, golden, curly, Gentile locks, Aryan usually. Ridiculous, ridiculous uh, misrepresentation of the son of God who was a carpenter whose hands were rough and by the way carpenters quite often were also stonemasons so you know uh, anyways think about this I've just got uh, some scripture listed here that show Jesus behaving in ways that don't match sweet little Jesus boy Matthew chapter 3 verse 7 he calls them a brood of vipers Chapter twenty three verse thirty three he says you're fit only for hell. There's no there's no nice way to say to somebody, you know, you're fit only for hell. Matthew twenty three twenty seven whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. That, that's not nice. Mark four, forty two through forty seven. This is his opinion of those who hurt children. It'd be better that they have a millstone tied around their neck and be cast into the sea. Matthew 17, verse 17, he says to his disciples, how long do I have to put up with you? Luke 13, verse 6 through 9, the parable of the fig tree, which is a parable of cut it down and throw it in the fire. It's not producing anything. Which speaks of when patience ceases to be a virtue, then patience becomes a naive vice. Mark nine thirty one, the disciples are afraid to ask him a question. Now, obviously, I don't believe they're afraid he's going to hit them, but they're afraid to, to stir him up. <laughs> Matthew 21, 13, and John 2, verse 13 through 16. Two occasions, he makes whips, and he uses them. Luke nineteen twenty-seven. he tells a story in which he represents himself as being a ruler who says... Bring the wicked ones before me and slay them in my presence. Kill them in front of me. And then this is my favorite one, Luke 13, verse 32. He he has some of the Pharisees who are supportive of him come to him and tell him that Herod is on his trail and that he needs to go somewhere safe to get away from Herod for a while. And Jesus turns to them and says, go tell that fox, Herod, that I cast out devils and heal people. And on the third day, I will be completed. I will, you know, he he calls Herod a fox. Now, obviously, he's not saying Herod is foxy. Obviously, he's not saying that Herod is wise. The Hebraic use of the term fox is the closest we have to it in English, would be skunk. Go tell that stinkwad. Go tell that skunk. Now, my point here is obviously not to find an excuse to, to talk mean to people, uh, but it is to help us get free of a, of a concept of being Christian in an unchristian world that I think is not serving uh, us well. It's not serving God well, and it's not serving the world that we're to reach well. And that is the idea that the love of God is demonstrated through us by us being, quote, nice. You know, be nice. Well, what, being nice is not the same as being good. In fact, sometimes being nice is a way to avoid being good. So when, when you take all these verses together that I've just listed Uh, And you don't try to build doctrinal concepts out of it, but just take it at face value. What kind of a personality are you seeing when you put these verses together? You, You don't see Jesus with mascara and big eyelashes and curly blonde hair, swishing through the pages of the New Testament. It's a demonic caricature, it's not even a caricature, it's a blasphemy. When taken together, these verses might help us get delivered from that pacifist, effeminate image of Jesus. For that wrong image, coupled with the f- feminization of Christianity itself, which is too large a subject for me to to get on, into. But but the, when I speak of the feminization of Christianity, I'm speaking of a not just the infiltration of of political feminism. That was the that was the uh, in result of a uh, loss of understanding of the masculine and a, and a loss of understanding of the true feminine that had been going on in Christian thinking for over a century. And, and that loss paved the way for the infiltration of the outright demonic uh, Jezebelian seduction of the church into uh, political and, uh, lesbian feminism. Well, that's too much to get into here now, but, uh, but over the recent decades, this, this has contributed to the crisis in leadership in the family. It has contributed to the crisis in, uh, romance. Uh, uh you know, a woman, this is a slight digression, but I want to just mention it here. A woman doesn't want a man who is a woman come <laughs> I mean, guys do you understand that when 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 i work with so many young adult people who are trying to work through relational issues uh, toward marriage or or sometimes in marriage but quite often it's towards marriage because in their 30s they're still not married uh and quite often the reason among other reasons is that uh He's a nice guy. He's so busy trying to be a nice guy, he's forgotten how to be a man. And uh, certainly in the 70s, 60s, 70s, 80s, well, you can go back farther than that, but anyway, uh, machoism uh, had helped feed uh, a, 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 a brokenness in the marital structure. That, uh, was, was resulting in some cases in mistreatment of women and misogyny was uh, an issue, certainly an issue. But there was such an emergency overreaction. Uh, well, maybe I shouldn't say an overreaction. There was such an emergency reaction against misogyny in the six, seventies and eighties, uh, that, that men truly needed to repent of that we did not make preparation for the swinging of the pendulum that's gone way over here now with the men acting like girly men. I mean, they they don't know how to think like a man. They don't know how to respond like a man. Uh, They check with their wives to find out if it's okay, if they have an opinion or or not that might be uh, angry or masculine. And, of course, that that poured into the church. And the church already had a a tendency toward feminization that goes all the way back to certain aspects of the Middle Ages where uh, celibacy, uh, wrongly perpetrated, became uh, uh, a perversion of the God-called, God-ordained anointing that some people are given to be celibate. It became an an institutionalized church dogma. And out of that has come all the confusion and mess that you see today in in, uh, not only the Roman Catholic system, but in some Protestant systems where uh, many men in ministry have gone to ministry because they are over-feminized and don't know how to do anything else, so they go into the ministry, take refuge in ministry because they don't know how to be men. Well, I've opened up about 12 cans here of worms that I can't close. So anyway, uh, here's the deal. Uh, This places our entire society in grave danger. For the overused but underheated warning that all that is necessary for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing is more evident now than it's ever been before. Men and women of God have got to be set free from a pseudo-spirituality that erroneously defines love as Softness or being non confrontational. Sometimes, for instance, we're so quick to forgive, we don't even know exactly what it is we're forgiving. We don't even fully know what the offense is before we've rushed in to offer absolution. I heard a, a, a Jewish rabbi not long ago commenting on that, and he said, uh, and he's a very respectful man. He's not. A, he's not a. He does not embrace Jesus as his Messiah. But he, he's a man who who respects and honors the Christian faith, and recognizes that true Christianity is the protector of of the Jew. But he said, I'm very concerned about Christians who want to run in and start talking about forgiveness when there's been, for instance, some heinous crime where a man has murdered a child or something. And the first thing they want to talk about is what well, we got to forgive. Yes, forgive, but, but forgive with insight and wisdom and discretion and discernment. Don't use forgiveness as a band-aid that you try to plaster over a a shotgun bullet hole. Uh, again, that's too large a subject to to finish here, but I'm just mentioning these things as examples of where an over-feminized Christianity has uh, begun to produce uh, bad fruit. Um, you know, let the guilty party experience the weight of his sin a bit before we start Talking to him about forgiveness and grace. Uh, if you don't, then grace just becomes greasy grace. That's what's happened to the whole church. The whole church preaches a, a, a gospel that is devoid of conviction of sin, so people don't deeply repent. So they don't deeply, they're not deeply converted. So there's, there's a little bit of repentance in response to a little bit of conviction in response to a little bit of truth, and so you have a little bit of Christianity. Anyway, uh, this otherworldly spirituality disguises itself as acting in a Christian way. And b- to be honest, it gives many of us permission to ultimately not act at all. So we can feel feel oh so Christian while actually doing nothing about the evil that we're confronted with. Now, unconditional love is an absolutely necessary thing to give to children, but it's not the way to deal with an adult world filled with adult evil and choice making that results in evil lines must be drawn and stances must be taken and sacrifices must be made by those who, as the book of Hebrews puts it, have, quote, trained their senses to discern the difference between good and evil, Hebrews chapter 5 says. So let's try to gather all this together and discern what, what we've learned so far. Number one, The heart of God is to redeem, to cleanse, to restore. He expects us to love what he loves, but he also expects us to hate what he hates. In order to love truly, we must hate truly and take whatever self-sacrificing stance we must take in order to overcome evil. Number three, we cannot overcome evil by being evil. And this is, this is really where the catch comes. Um, I've dealt with soldiers many times who have been tormented by the memory of some military action they had to make in which civilians were killed. Now, that is part of the tragedy of life, It's part of the tragedy of war. War is not glorious. War is not righteous. Uh, war is a necessary evil. It's an unavoidable evil in a fallen world. If, you know, if you're living in la-la land with uh, most of, uh, of the people uh, in Hollywood, for instance, who think that, uh, well, why can't we all just get along, you know, like Rodney King, you know. Why, well, You know, the reason Rodney King couldn't get along is because he was full of PCP and he was attacking people and fighting uh, policemen. Maybe that's got something to do with why he couldn't get along. And he's been arrested, I think, four or five times since then for various uh, acts of violence perpetrated on other people. But he's famous in the liberal, hyper uh, left-wing liberal world for being the poster child for, quote, why can't we all get along? Well, we can't get along because there's evil. That's why we can't get along. Uh, I used to live uh, not far from where I live now. There was uh, a lot of that kind of hyper left-wing hippie kind of goofiness. And they, you know, they, they think the world can be saved with bumper stickers. And uh, uh, quite often I'd see a bumper sticker that said, uh, you know, visualize world peace. And then finally somebody came up with one that made more sense. It said visualized swirled peace instead of world peace, and it made more sense. Sitting around visualizing world peace, uh, exactly how does that look when while you're visualizing world peace, somebody is cutting somebody else's throat because they're not sitting around visualizing world peace. Uh, Evil is a reality that has to be confronted by force. Which Romans thirteen addresses. I've already talked about that in extensively in the previous study, so I don't want to get back into it now. But here's the deal: we overcome evil not by being evil. You know, you don't ever overcome evil with evil. But I have to help those soldiers work through the agony of feeling like they are evil because they were part of something where innocent people were hurt. Now, there's a thousand different variations on this, and I'm not qualified or able, nor do I have the time here to try to sort out when it's, when it's viable and when it's not. Uh, You know, there's a famous ongoing argument among historians over whether uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki were uh, necessary evils that, that saved us from greater evil, or was it a horrendous misuse of, of uh, knowledge that uh, opened the door to a horrible Pandora's box that we will uh, never be able to close and that will eventually bring the destruction of the world. I, I tend to think, to be honest, that the dropping of a, 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 a an atomic bomb on women and children was an evil. Um, and I'm very disturbed by Christian friends of mine, some military and some not, who take me to task over that and begin to give me all the reasons why it was unavoidable when you start finding excuses for killing women and children in the name of doing good you have become evil boy how many cans am I going to open in this that I can't close anyway we cannot overcome evil by being evil we can only overcome evil with good but here's my point being good is not the same as being nice the word nice comes from the French-Latin root, which means to be ignorant or absent of awareness. <laughs> so I guess we are being nice. Uh, the reason the word nice came to mean being sweet or being cuddly or being easy to get along with is because its original definition of, of ignorance and absence of awareness Became related to childlike, childlike innocence, unblamableness. Being nice then came to mean be, be childlike, get, be easy to get along with, be unblameable, don't be the perpetrator of wrong, be uh, uh, one who offers what is good. But good disappeared out of the mix somewhere along the line, and nice just became non confrontational, without opinion, without any ability. To stand, it just became kind of a milk toast, meaningless word, really. But what does the Bible say we're supposed to be? Because really that that's really all I care about. All I care about is I want to know what Jesus expects of me in the face of the current evil that we're facing in our culture and in our world, politically, uh, economically, Uh, In relation to the poor, in relationship to the misuse of children, in relationship to the slave trade, everything you can name that is evil. What is my responsibility in response to that? Matthew 18, verses 3 through 5, Jesus says, unless you are converted and become like a little child, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Does that mean then be nice? Since nice means Childlike, or originally meant that. Psalm 131 says, I have quieted myself like a weaned child. David says, I've learned to quiet myself like a weaned child. I've learned not to take up upon myself things too great for me to handle. Uh, and then he says, Lord, uh, trust Israel in the Lord. So there's obviously support for being childlike. But is that a carte blanche statement that I'm supposed to apply to every aspect of my life in every situation? Well, no, because Ephesians chapter 4 verse 14 and 15 says, Be no longer like children, but grow up. 1 Corinthians 13 verse 11 says, Put away childish things. Now I recognize that childish and childlike are not the same thing, but Paul is obviously saying that there's a kind of love in First Corinthians 13 that childishness doesn't doesn't manifest, and childlikeness is a is a manifestation of it. But childlikeness doesn't cover every aspect of life, and when we just pull one or two concepts out of Scripture and try to stick that onto every apply it to every situation, we end up in the impotent position that we're in. Romans 16, verse 19, Be wise in what is good, and innocent in what is evil. 1 Corinthians fourteen 20, Don't be children in your thinking. In, practice, in in the practicing of evil, be babies. But otherwise, be mature. These verses say, it, it, there is a kind of child-likeness in mature spirituality that doesn't even think in terms of evil. What Paul's describing here is not a man who hasn't got the capacity to fight if he needs to, but a man who's not looking for a fight. He's not walking around looking for someone to cross him so he can beat the hell out of them. He's somebody who's who's capable of protecting the defenseless, or he would not be a, a man who could do good. But he's not a man with a chip on his shoulder looking for an excuse to do it. In evil, he's childlike. Does that make sense to you? But in goodness, he's mature. In evil, he's childlike, which means he's not even thinking in terms of attacking you. But in goodness, he's mature, which means if you attack his wife or child, he's going to deal with you. Jesus says in Matthew 10, verse 16, I send you out as sheep. In the midst of wolves. Therefore be wise as serpents, but harmless as doves. The word wise here is actually not a good translation. The the Greek word here, phronimos, is actually the word for shrewd. Be shrewd as serpents and harmless as doves. Now what is shrewdness? Basically uh, this is maybe a loose translation, but shrewdness is practical wisdom that accomplishes a goal or overcomes an obstacle. That's what shrewdness is. Jesus was manifesting shrewd wisdom, shrewdness, in Matthew 18, uh, when, or in, in Matthew 5, excuse me, when he talks about turning the other cheek. Uh, he's not, uh, I've said this already in, in the previous study, but he's not talking there about being spiritual and standing there, getting your head beat in so that you can appear spiritual. Uh, I, I have to review this for those of you who are familiar with it from the previous study. Forgive me uh, for taking time to do it, but I feel like I need to just reiterate this so you get it clear in your thinking. We read that, turn the other cheek and we, we get, you see, if you read that with the milk toast uh, Nice definition, then you think you're just supposed to stand there and get your head beat in so that you can appear spiritual and uh, Christian, which really only appears weak and, and stupid. But Jesus, as we've gone into great detail to, to address already, Jesus is saying in very practical, shrewd, discerning terms look, if somebody strikes you on the right cheek, I and mean, he specifies the right cheek, which tells us a whole lot about what what that means, and I'm not going to reiterate all that. It's been done on the, in the previous message. But he says, if you're in a situation where you are being demeaned by a power you cannot resist in, in your own strength, you know there's nothing you can do, there's still something you can do. There's always a way to confront evil with truth uh, or speaking truth to power, as the, the phrase is often used. And so he says, I'm sending you out into that. I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. So be shrewd. Learn how to think and move and act in ways where the kingdom can be manifested through what you're doing in, 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 uh, in ways that bring redemption. And uh, part of bringing redemption is bringing justice and bringing the correction of that which is wrong. Let me just give you one recent, well-known example. It may not be as well-known to some of you across the the ocean, uh, but it's uh, been highly publicized here, not because... Our news media has wanted to cover it, by the way. Only certain conservative news uh, centers have uh, covered this story. The so-called main uh, news organizations have uh, manifestly demonstrated their partisanship and their uh, loss of journalistic conscience by not covering this story until it was unavoidable. But several months ago, a young man named James O'Keefe, 25 years old, and his uh, 20-year-old friend, Hannah, her name is Hannah Giles, worked out a plan to go into an organization here in the United States that is notorious for uh, crooked business dealings, uh, uh, crooked political activity, uh Marxist uh, activity. And they, they filmed, they secretly filmed interviewing one of these organizations in which Hannah posed as a prostitute. James posed as her pimp. And they went in to discuss with this organization which is called ACORN. I won't get into all the acronym meanings of all that but acorn is just a cover organization for all kinds of of uh, organized crime that uh, the left wing party of the united states fully supports and fully embraces by the way but they go in and they they say uh in front of the camera of course the acorn people don't know they're being filmed they say uh Uh, I'm a prostitute, and this is my pimp, and we want to buy a house, and we don't have any money. Would you help us get the money to buy a house? Because we want to open a house of prostitution in inner city Baltimore, and we're going to populate it with uh, 13- and 14-year-old girls that we've smuggled in from uh, El Salvador. And uh, in every case that they did this, uh, they were met with total support, an agreement, and even gleefully, these uh, people responded to this proposal, and began to explain what they had to do to get around the laws, and to uh, uh, there was absolutely no conscience about them. Not only the girl being a prostitute, no, no conscience. They 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 talked to her about what a one of them talked to her about what a uh, uh, important role she played in society and she needed to hold her head up and be proud of herself. And uh, all this on tape, all this filmed, audio and, and video, it's plastered all over the country. It's unavoidable now. Uh, but, but let me tell you, the, the price this 25-year-old young man and this 20-year-old girl will, will pay for doing this has yet to be seen. But I can tell you now, in, in in the face of insurmountable evil that they knew they had no power to gainsay or resist, they found a way to expose it to the light, and they let the light destroy the darkness. Now, it's not hard for any of you to believe that keep up with the, the battle that we're in, that they are already being uh, uh, sued. By Acorn. Now, are you ready for, ready for this? Acorn has been uncovered as a front organization that supports prostitution, uh, lying and cheating the government, stealing public funds for ev- evil practices. But most of all, now they're uncovered as being, uh, in collusion with the trafficking of children for sex, slave trade sex. But they are going to try to say in court that uh, it's it was illegally obtained, the information was illegally obtained, because in the state of Maryland uh, you can't record someone uh, without their knowledge. Now, that is a, that's about as smart as, as a policeman pulling over an ambulance because it's speeding while it has the body of a dying person in the back that they've got to get to a hospital. That, that's that's the same logic. In fact, the policeman may have more reason uh, in that unreasonable, foolish example. That's not that's not an example any policeman would ever do. But uh, you see, this brings us to the next area of study that I want us to delve into. When uh, we're out of time now, but. Uh, I want to go from what we're studying here, and, and I mean, I'm not pretending to have properly answered the questions. Um, you know, in my in my mind, anybody anybody who would say that this young man and this young woman has done something wrong needs their head examined. It'd be like you telling uh, me that uh, uh, the. Anybody who hid a Jew from a Nazi is breaking the law. How dare you break the law of the Nazis? You, the law, uh, you've got to obey the law. The Bible says obey the law. I mean, who, in, who in their right mind would say such a stupid thing? But see, stupidity. I've said this so many times because so many people fuss at me for saying the word stupid too much. I probably do say it too much. I'm sure I do. Because there's just so many opportunities to use it. But the fact is, stupidity is a judgment from God. God God gives you stupidity in response to willful rebellion against his word. Sin will make you stupid, my wife is fond of saying. Because it's true. So the spirit of Courage and integrity and heroism demonstrated by this young man and this young woman putting their life on the line because they're dealing with people that don't think for a moment that Acorn doesn't have its hands in blood up to its elbows uh, uh, because it's a front organization for organized crime uh, that the Democratic Party in America has helped prop up and feed. I want to underscore for those of you listening in uh, Great Britain and in other parts of Europe, d- make no mistake about it. Please hear me. I'm not a Republican. I'm a Christian. Uh, so I'm not waving a flag for the Republicans. Most of the Republicans ought to be voted out of office uh, for sheer lack of courage and integrity. But the Democratic Party in America has become something that John Kennedy or Hubert Humphrey would have nothing to do with. The Democratic Party in America has become, for all practical purposes, the Marxist-Socialist Party at best. And at worst, they are Antichrist. And uh, that doesn't mean there's not good Democrats in this country who love God and love people and are trying to serve godly purposes while still hoping to maintain uh, their political uh, affiliation in the hopes of, of some good coming of it. But for the most part if there's porn the re- the democrats support it if there's child molestation the democrats turn their head to it if there's evil perpetrated in any form especially like what i've just described with acorn it's the democrats that are that are politically uh supportive of it make no mistake i know what european newspaper uh, uh communication is like and uh by the way speaking of that uh nbc cBS ABC cNN uh they are all simply pawns now of uh the democratic party they are they are Go- they are goebbels they are joseph Goebbels that's all they are uh so you, when you say you heard something in America about uh, something in America and you heard it on uh one of the national news systems, you have every reason to question whether it's accurate or not or whether it's just propagandized. Anyway, the spirit of deception is is, uh, the judgment of God on a culture that has willfully turned from the light of God's revelation. And so uh, I want you to understand, uh, God, God holds us responsible, those of us who are children of the light, those of us who claim to be children of the light. He holds us responsible for the shining of the light on evil, and you can't do that and be nice. We're out of time. Uh, We'll we'll try to delve into this question of the spirit of deception in our next time together. God bless you all. Thank you for listening. Bye-bye.